Page 944 in your pew Bibles, if you have them, the, they look like this. They're in there, if you would like to follow in that way. It's just the same that's on the screen, uh, if you want to do that. We also have those journals as well. Page 944, if you are a person that uh, would like to read more about the Bible and don't have one, or have one maybe from a translation that you don't particularly prefer, you're welcome to this Bible. You're not stealing it, because we're giving it to you. So, please take it if you need it, or even if you just want it. All right. Look, people are actually getting out their Bibles. This life feels like somewhere before 1980 something. All right. I want to start with three definitions. Um, yeah, I want to start with three definitions. The first one is mind, and the second one is, um, is flesh, and the other, third one is spirit. Okay, if you're reading this passage and you're in verse 5, it says, set their minds on things of the flesh. Set their minds on things of the spirit. Those are actually, that's not the verb set in the word and the noun mind. It's actually just a verb. So it's mind the things of the flesh, mind the things of the spirit, like mind your manners, or mind the gap, if you've ever been on the subway in London. It says mind the gap. Should be a little, see, I brought you right to London for the underground. So there's a gap between where you get on the train or not, and they have those mind the gaps over there. So it's a verb, mind, mind the gap. In verse 6 and 7, mind there is actually a noun form of the same kind of word, just like our word mind is. So it's, so it's literally for the mind of the flesh or for the mind of the spirit. Now, the translation stuff, there's another place we're going to talk about. I don't want you to fuss over that too badly. Um, but let's make sure we understand that mind here is not what we first think of with mind, which is like your brain or your intellect. It's actually what preoccupies one's attention. It's actually more like mindset. Love him or hate him, Nick Saban has led a dynasty. I prefer the latter emotional posture towards that institution. What, in, what interests me, though, about Nick Saban is not his incredible winning percentage. He has won a lot of football games. But even after major wins, he says all the right things, and he's proud of his players, and they worked really hard, and they deserved this victory, and the coaches did a great job, and we stuck to the game plan. But he always looks like he's got something else on his mind. Have you noticed this with him? It turns out that this is football, just in case for some of you who don't know, just like Pixar is hard for some. Thank you. This is the football, uh, football Americana. Yes. Okay. Got it. It turns out that he does. After, um, he does actually have something on his mind. After the time that um, Alabama beat Clemson for the national championship, Saban was like really short and uncomfortable during the trophy presentation, I don't know if you know this, in the interviews. Well, he actually did have something else on his mind. He actually went to the locker room immediately after that, and there was a coach's office, a small coach's office in the locker room where he began to text future recruits. This was before early decision signing in December for the college football season, and Saban knew that his recruits were deciding where to, who, to, who to play for in the next month, and he wanted to get them a, a text from the sidelines saying, this is what you can be a part of. That's a mindset. His mind was not on the past about winning it again. It was a mindset of forward, a preoccupation with winning again. That's what we need to think of when we're thinking about mind or minding in this passage. 
Then there's the word flesh, also a really important word to define. Uh, when we say flesh, typically we mean this stuff, right? Body, muscle, tissue, stuff, you know, that covers our bones and stuff and all that. That's the, my scientific term for it. Um, or sometimes we think about like um, base bodily instincts or sexual appetites or something like that. But that is not, I would not be fair to the definition of flesh in the Bible in, in, in this passage. The flesh is actually a whole and holistic corruption of the sinful nature. That's why I often will, um, if I remembered, would put a capital F for flesh. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a state, if you will, like when you capitalize the fall or something like that. Luther's one of favorite terms for this was that humanity and individual humans were deeply curved in on themselves. He uses that several times. It's a me world, and it's all in the end about focusing on me, 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 me. And so we set, to set the mind on the flesh or to mind the flesh is, is, is like minding your achievement, minding your comfort, minding your desire to avoid difficult situations, minding your fears, minding, minding your desire to just be left alone, uh, minding um, your own shame and not giving it over to another. The key is that it's deeply all about you, deeply kind of curved on, in on itself. So that's flesh. And then spirit would be the third definition. And this is really important here because there's been some fuss at times of how you translate this one as well, but it should be capital S all the way through. Because in this passage today, it's, passage today, it's used like 10 times, the word spirit. And this is the spirit as in the Holy Spirit, not the spirit of humanity or spirituality or anything like that. And so it should be capitalized throughout. It is, in fact, the third person of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is an incredibly Trinitarian um, uh, uh, passage that we have. God and Jesus and the Spirit fill these verses. And there's the word, the phrase Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ that are actually used interchangeably, which is pretty cool. And we'll talk a lot about the Spirit today. But just reminding ourselves again what our Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches is there are three persons in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God of the same substance, equal in power and glory. Of the same substance, equal in power and glory. All right. You got your three definitions. Now we kind of come to the more obvious part of our passage today, which is these two groups, these two states of being that, that are before us. They are... Um, uh, there's a binary of life, a two-path, you know, two-road path, if you will. Um, uh, and these states of being lead to two different minds or mindsets. If you look at verse 5 with me, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. I've already kind of adjusted the translation of set their minds, being, meaning more like minds the things of the Spirit. But also that word live there, those who live according to flesh, that's actually, that word is not really in there. It's a way to kind of smooth out the way you read it. It reads more like this. For those who are according to the flesh, there's actually no word there, which in Greek means you put the a to be verb in there. For those who are of, uh, according, or who are according to the flesh, mind the flesh. Those are according to the spirit, mind the spirit. That's what it looks like. And this is important, because sometimes when you do translation, and, and I totally understand why, and it's, translation is just hard. So um, I understand why. But what it, what we, why I wanted to kind of 
translate it more woodenly for you, is that um, it is surely not that people um, are this way because they think this way. That is not what Paul is saying. As John Stott says, that's partly true. But people think like this because they are like this. And I think that's a right order of things to get in our heads as we think about these kind of foils, these, uh, they, these binaries that are before us. Or maybe it's simpler just to say, your mindset, your minding flows from your, who you are, your identity, not vice versa. So who you are, your loves, your body, your longings, they actually create your mindsets, your preoccupations, and they actually lead somewhere. They lead to two spiritual, very stark spiritual results and two postures in life. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Let's be clear mindset is not neutral. It's very popular to think that we have neutral minds and we stand objectively over reality. That's a false reality. That's not true. It's not true of us, and when we admit it, we actually know it's not true. There is an inward bent of the self when we are talking about the flesh that leads to death, or there is an abundant love of the Spirit from the Spirit that leads to life and peace. Those are the resulting categories, the results spiritually of what's going on. Even when those things are masqueraded in, um, in good deeds or being really smart or being very aware of people around you, um, the self under the flesh is still inwardly bent. Death and life here is likely spiritual death, just so you know, because we're going to talk about physical death and resurrection here in a little bit, and also because, just logically, even if you are of the Spirit or uh, are according to the Spirit, you physically die. So this is spiritual life and death. They are connected, but they are distinguishable. So the spiritual death actually uh, is revealed in our lives by the posture with which we have towards God. So, so for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then it goes on to give you the other category. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So that's pretty clear and stark. Minding the flesh doesn't just mean that a human soul is curved on itself or a human person is curved on itself, but it is also bent against God. That's important for us to hear that in the flesh, we would cherish a kind of freedom from God's creative place in our life as creator, as Lord, and we resist that. We all hold, don't shred on me signs to God. We shake fists against his reign in the flesh. And there's this instinct or posture of animosity, Paul calls it hostility, other translations use enmity, but it's worse because it's not just hostility or enmity, but inability. It's, there, there's no power to keep the law. We, we hadn't been bitten by the radioactive spirit to fundamentally shape us. So those in the flesh take on not just the posture of enemy, they're stuck there 
with no desire or ability or power or faculties to change that posture. Inability, in 12 steps, called powerlessness. Not having power over sin. Which is where 9 comes in, verse 9. There is a way out, but it comes not from within, but from without. It comes from the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, your Spirit of God dwells in you. And that's when the posture changes. Because those who are in the Spirit, and because the Spirit is outside of us, at at some point, by His grace, He comes to live in us. And this is mystery. There's no, like, way to diagram this thing very easily. From a part... From, from God being apart from us to being a part of us. He dwells in us. That's the language of living in us. That's inhabiting, indwelling of the Spirit. That's where the power comes, and it comes at conversion. The Spirit is in you. And the power of the Spirit is wildly not just shaping of our affections and what we long for, it actually keeps us and and forgives our sin and all that wonderful stuff. It actually has us not treat God like he's our enemy anymore. Well, it's really good news that God doesn't treat us like an enemy anymore by his grace and kindness. But the really wild thing is that when the Spirit comes and lives in us, we stop treating him like an enemy. And in fact, a few verses, a little sneak peek to next week, we call him Abba, Father. So we're shifted and changed in the spirit from the state to, this, from, from, to a mindset to the spiritual life or a changed posture, not a bent, get, bent against um, God, but bent toward. We have a Godward bent of the self because the spirit dwells in us. That's glory to be to God. That means we can actually please God. And that's actually a really wonderful thing. I'll get to that in a minute. So, now I'm going to stop, and we're going to review basically since chapter 5. For those of you who don't know, we've been doing Romans for a year. We took the summer off, and now we're coming back. So this is the only second sermon in. So I'm going to bring you from 5 on. If you remember 5, it's all about these binaries. They happen, or you're either in or out, or it's uh, uh, old age or age to come. There's the, you're in the first Adam, or you're in the second Adam. You're under the law or under Christ. You're under the flesh or under the spirit. See, that's actually a repeat from 5 or 6 or something like that. Um, you, you have a master that's either sin or God. Your desires are for evil or for good. Like as a fundamental reality. Now these are separate categories. These are completely separate categories. They don't overlap. These are not either ors. This is or isn't of you. And that's where we get flesh and spirit. So one of the ways we look at this, so I turn this into a, like a future circle. So go to the next slide. There you go. Those are, the few, those are the circles. All right, so under the reign of sin or under, under the reign of grace. And we found through five through seven is, is that these are absolute categories for Paul. And, um, and so, um, so, yeah, you got, you got those two things here. But here's where we got start to make a mistake. So I'm telling you now, this next slide is not the way it's supposed to, we're supposed to view it, okay? So next slide. What we tend to do is think that our true self is actually stuck between those two things, and we're like halvesies. But that is not the way Paul talks about us. It's not. Now, if you change that category of identity to experience, like how it feels sometimes, it definitely feels like that sometimes. But true identity, what is declared over us, what is reality in us, 
It doesn't look like that. So, of course, I got to my incredibly artistic way, and, um, and I started drawing what I thought it should look like. So, please, wonder at its majesty. I know you scarce can take it in. It's true. That is true. You scarce can take it in. So what I did is I turned the, um, I turned the, uh, the Venn diagram, and I turned it into cylinders on the sides like that, right? And uh, don't worry, it'll, it'll get clearer, I promise. Um, it, it, and so what I talked about was the reign of sin and the reign of grace, the reign of life, uh, of grace and life, and I made it like rain, like through conduits, right? Like, like, you guys are a little tickled by it, all right? And then there's this place where, see that line is? This place, okay. So what I did is I realized I couldn't do that. So then I went to the next one, and I tried this. I was like, okay, well, that kind of works better with the rain and the old and the true self, and there's a place. And so then I just gave up because as amazing as my Microsoft skill level is, I had to quit. And so I just called Mary Spar and I said, will you please draw this for me? And she did, and she nailed it. You could put the flesh and the spirit, the age and the age to come. She's getting, like, giving you a chance to look at it. We were dead in sin, and at conversion, we become alive in him. And though we may get wet from some of the rain, of the rain, of sin and death, we identify and are identified as we are in new life. And we are walking. Look at that third character. She's walking. Her, she's, her mindset is toward the age of grace. You could put the spirit over there. That's the way we are pictured. That's the way it works. Again, experientially, you're getting rain all over your, all, everywhere. You can feel it. But the truest thing about you is that you are, the age to come has broken in. The eternal life has broken in, and you now live outside of that reality because Messiah has come. And there will be a day, a day that is your truest self that's going to play in the rain and under the rain of grace. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is the age to come, and it's broken in and made us eternal life people, and now we live accordingly. That's what it is. We're just going where we're, we're meant to be. I got lost on my notes. Hold on. So that's what this... Um, Like, this girl may still sin, but it will be a betrayal of her truest desire, an act out of character of her new identity, an anomaly of action that is aberrant, an aberrant act of her old flesh. It is inconsistent with the new DNA reality of the spirit residing in her. That's what's going on. And so when you read this passage, and when you go through five all the way till this part of eight, you're going, I mean, you've had to ask the question, which, where am I? Am I, in the fl- am I according to the flesh, or am I according to the Spirit? And I think that's a fair question. There's enough, if the Spirit dwells in you, if you live according to the flesh, enough if clauses in there. I do think Paul's asking us to wonder wonder at least what we're minding, or wonder a little bit about how our lives compare to this glorious calling and this true identity that has happened in us. 
Calvin even says that they are stirred up to examine themselves more closely, lest they should profess the name of Christ in vain. And he says we need to care deeply about um, uh, killing sin, you know, what he says, uh, to, to mortify the flesh. And in the surest mark by which the children of God are distinguished from the children of the world, when by the Spirit of God they are renewed unto purity and holiness. And that's absolutely true that that's one of the questions that's, that, that's there. But it's not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is to set up for you to see the glory of the reality that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the main point of the passage. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God resides in you. And the one who raised Christ from the dead has brought that to be. This eternal life has broken in. And so the one solution to all of this is the gospel itself. It's a gazillion kilowatts of God's grace and power in your life. Pretty sure that's also a scientific term. If you find yourself in the flesh, the solution is come to Jesus and find life. Escape death. If you find yourself in the Spirit, the solution is you have come to Jesus and you have found life. And if you're struggling with some crazy old thoughts, the solution is the same. Come to Jesus. Come again, come or come again to the Spirit who dwells in his people. Turn or return to where eternal life is and eternal death is escaped. He was raised from the dead to give life to our dying bodies through his spirit who lives in us. Who lives in us. You're not going to wrap your uh, mind or heart around that. You enter into it and trust it. And when you do, you are something new. You're freed from the power of the consequences of sin, judgment, shame, and death, but you're also freed from the power of sin to reign in your life. That's grace upon grace. Under the mindset of the Spirit, we have a superpower because God himself lives in us. And that superpower is, well, what one theologian, John Owen, calls the mortification of the flesh. He wrote a whole book. It's an amazing little book. It's an intimidating little book, but it's an amazing little book about this very verse. That by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. You put to death the flesh. His most famous line, I think it's probably his most famous line, his most famous line I know from it, is, you will either be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul sees this as a battle, and sometimes when I hear that, y'all, I get, all, I get all messed up in my head. I start thinking, well, okay, well, then let me get my list together, let me figure it all out, and let me figure out how I'm going to grind this thing out. Now, the instinct to, to want purity and stuff, that's good. Then the, the instinct to know that it's going to take some sort of effort, that's really good. No merit, effort, right? No merit, effort, Right? We don't merit anything. The only ground for salvation is the work of Christ given to us as a gift. Right? All right, just making sure we're not getting sideways with this. 
But we have a freedom to kill sin. The power to kill sin. To have a mindset to the power to do that. Not on your own. That's just plain silly. That's how you become a Christian, realizing it's not on your own powerlessness. But because the spirit of the resurrected Christ lives in us, where are we killing sin? And I could ask that question in a way that, that got you all sideways with yourself. I don't intend to do that. If you are experiencing it as a shame question, deny that is not true. It is not from the reign of grace. If it's actual conviction, Jesus will just tell you, I want you to do something differently because I love you. And then you can repent and try again. All right? If it's a big cloud of shame, that as in, that's from the enemy. That is not from the spirit of the living God. I'm all off my notes now. Okay. It's not very Presbyterian of me. The Holy Ghost in here. We're going to watch something, something happen. We can try again because what did we hear last week? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Still true. Just a few verses ago. Three, to matter of fact. Four. But this mortification, we can actually, wherever there is a lack of conformity to God's will, there's anywhere that, 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 that the law and love of God is shunned, whether it is in us or in our world, that we have power to get after it, that we have power to overcome the very gates of hell. But that only exists if we also understand this mortification is born out of this liberation that we have in Jesus. Owen says, a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification." So you can't get after the mortifying, the killing of the, the deeds of the flesh without a deep, foundational sense of the love of Christ at the cross. That's the liberation that generates the mortification. Otherwise, there's no power. So there has to be this liberating act because conviction is useless without that liberation. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that righteousness now harkens back all the way to the first part of Romans and all the way throughout. This is the righteousness that is a gift from God. I know we've talked about righteousness in lots of different ways in Romans, but in here right now, this is a righteousness that is the spirit which is life because of the gift given to us. The grounds of our righteousness is the declared righteousness over us. That is grace and grace alone. But the grace that is coupled with us, is, that is a grace that actually changes and shapes us. Grace never works. Grace always works. They're together. And so you can get after it. You can begin again. And I do, please, let us pray through not getting on some, like, self-fix-it plan regimen. And yet let us not back off the true effort that it takes, the daily struggle to fight sin. 
but we do it from a place of liberation and freedom so you can try and try and try again. I don't, I don't know what drives Coach Saban. I can't know and have no desire to judge his heart at all. But I think I can understand part of him. Not wasting time celebrating a victory because he's got to go back to the grind and get these high schoolers on the team so he can do it again. It seems that this is a common trait among many successful coaches. Saban, I heard Belichick, Popovich, others as well, um, um, Jobs and Bezos. It's this constant sense of hating to lose. Actually, my friend Kay Holland heard Belichick say once on an off-the-cuff interview, he doesn't hate losing, he fears it. Just so you know, that's under the spirit of law, the first Adam, the flesh. Perfection is not required of you. Holiness, perfection is not required of you. Faithfulness to return again and again to live by correct grace, to mortify the flesh. All that other stuff is just living a different kind of fleshiness. You don't have to be perfect to please God. You don't have to win every game. You don't have to get set up and not even enjoy the little victories that you have along the way. Because the radioactive spirit has bitten us and we live under a different reign and we can enjoy the national championship if we win it. Because <laughs> we don't live out of this mindset of losing and failure and not enough, but the mindset that the Spirit of God lives in us. Let's pray.